0: I love charcuterie. I love making yes. charcuterie boards. It's been a favorite of mine. <laughs> a little bit of cheese, a little bit of grapes, and some other stuff in between. And I love nibbled so, foods.
1: Consistent. Yes. So. Okay. So I, okay, that has been one of our little COVID things that me and my daughter have been doing. But I could not say charcuterie for a million years. Yes. See, so it's like the charcuterie, <laughs> and I could kind of picture it in my mind, but I could not say charcuterie, so I had to say it over and over charcuterie board, charcuterie board. Hello, and welcome to Someday Is Here, a podcast for Asian American Pacific Islander women on our ethnic journey and leadership. I am your host Vivian Mabuni, and we are so glad you're here. Hi, everyone! Welcome back to Sundays. Here, I love introducing to you up-and-coming leaders. And this week's guest is Sandhya Oaks. She's a passionate communicator and writer and reconciliation leader. Uh, Sandhya is a transracial adoptee. She's born in India and was raised in Wisconsin. And Many of you know, some of you may not, that that November is National Adoption Awareness Month. And usually the story of adoption is told through the lens of the adoptive parents. Um, there aren't a lot of resources for the transracial adoptee. And I love that Senja was so willing to share with us her story and some of the lessons she's learned and provide resources for us to better be equipped to love well. Um, all triads, all people in the triad of adoption, which was again new information for me. Sandhya, uh holds a certificate in resilient service from the Seattle School and is the co founder of the adoption triad, and we talk all about that in our conversation. Um, she is committed to resourcing and teaching and connecting individuals whose lives have been touched by adoption and foster care. And I learned so much from our conversation. And I'm so excited for you to get to know Sundia as well. So without further ado, here's our conversation. Well, welcome back to Some Days Here. And I'm Again, thrilled every week. There are just way too many incredible women to know, and what a privilege to be able to interview you today and have a conversation with my friend, and uh, probably the in in our series, the second transracial adoptee with an incredible story. So, yes. So, Cynthia Oakes lives in Min- Minneapolis, Minnesota, and as I shared earlier with the introduction, she has um, amazing story. And so much to bring to us today. So I'm just so excited. Welcome to Someday Is Here. Thanks, Vivian. I am so glad to be here with you. Well, I, as I shared in the introduction, you know, and just now even, this this whole story of the transracial adoptee, and, and I think about the heart and the vision with Someday Is Here with representing AAPI women, Asian American Pacific Islander women, and often the story is, uh, centered primarily around Korean and Chinese and Japanese. And so the, the, uh, the story of the South Asian can get lost in the mix of it all. And I feel that sometimes even in racial reconciliation conversations, often it's so much a black and white conversation and the Asian experience, Asian American AAPI experience gets lost in that too. So I love that you're willing to be here and to share your story. So, um, Let's just jump in.
0: Let's do it. Why
1: don't you just go for it, and I'll probably interject and ask further questions as we go. But please go for it. Tell us your story. Yeah. So
0: I actually was born in India, and um, just a small village north of Delhi. Um, and I lived in an orphanage my first year of my life, and then was adopted into the United States. And I grew up in the Midwest, um, a small town in Wisconsin, and. While growing up, um, I was adopted into a white home, a home with all, um, my parents were white, my brothers were white, um, my school, all white people. My, I didn't really have anyone to, to look at and to have as a mirror to, to say, mm-hmm. oh, you look like me and this is good. And so it was interesting to me, um the kids, my classmates didn't really know what to say. And sometimes would make fun of me for my darker skin or uh, darker complexions, um, and darker features. And so I experienced, um, a handful of stories of racism growing up because people didn't Mm. know. And, um, yeah. And so that, that is one thing, but another thing is that people didn't really know how to engage in it even after. People didn't know how to say like, this is not okay, um, or how to like care for me in the midst of it.
1: Mm. So when you, when you mentioned that, um, you know, not only was there racism that was taking place or hurtful things that were said, it sounds like there wasn't a place for you to even process what was going on and having someone kind of walk you through that to be able to know like that wasn't okay or to validate your feelings. um, How did you then respond as a little girl? Do you remember how, I'm, I'm thinking for myself growing up in, in Boulder, it was very white. And, you know, my grandma raised, helped raise us. My mom worked, my dad worked. So my grandma was home and hurtful things would happen, but there was no one for me to talk to about what happened. And so then I just kind of, for me, at least I tried to morph into trying harder to be like everyone around me so I was curious how that was for you being like the only person of color the only South Asian in an all-white environment how did you respond as a little girl Um, do you remember some of the things that were said and how they landed with you yeah absolutely so I can remember being
0: in middle school and uh being in gym class and you of course where you change into shorts and your t-shirt. And I remember the, um, these girls saying, Oh my gosh, your knees are so dark. Like, do you not know how to take a shower? Do you not know how to wash yourself? You're dirty. And I, I remember going home not telling anyone. And I'll get to that in a second, but I remember internalizing it. And I remember the next time I took a shower, I scrubbed and I scrubbed and I scrubbed my knees because I wanted them to be lighter so that I wouldn't Mm. get made fun of. And so I would look like everyone else. And I also can remember um, really not liking being darker and having darker features. Mm. That was really hard for me and I longed to have blonde hair and blue eyes. I, I thought blue eyes were the best thing ever. And I remember like thinking like when the colored contacts came out, I was like, oh my gosh, maybe I can get colored contacts and um, change my eye color. It just mm. seemed like the the right way to to be mm. in where I was growing up. The other thing that you asked me about like who like how did I process that? Well, the unfortunate thing is that my family dynamics and relationships were, um, were pretty broken at this point. And what I mean by that is there was a lot of trauma in my home and it was directed toward me. And so Mm -hmm. I didn't have a safe place in my home. To talk about what had happened at school that day. Um, I didn't have someone who would sit and be attuned to me and listen to me and look at me and reaffirm that of course my knees are a little darker. I have darker features because that is part of being a South Asian young girl mm-hmm. at that point. And, um, and so I didn't have anyone to reassure me or just to listen to me. And that was hard. And so I kept internalizing anytime there was racism, I kept internalizing these messages that there's something wrong with my skin color and there's something wrong with my features, and I'm just not at where everyone else is. And that's why I wanted to um, put self-contempt on what I looked like and judge how I looked compared to others. And so for a long time, my narrative uh, was pretty negative about what I looked like and how I felt about the outside.
1: Wow. So, in your family, then, all white family, was there? any recognition of the Indian side of you? Like, was there any attempt to try to um, celebrate that or, or how, was it just an assumed thing? Like you're at Oaks now. So just fall in and we're just doing this. How did that work for you? Yeah. Well, I'll actually probably come back to that later, but I actually wasn't an Oaks as
0: a little girl. Um, I had oh. a different last name, but I will share that in a moment. Um, but I, yeah, I, the only time, and this is really heartbreaking, Viv, like the only time my adoption was brought up in my home was when there was a negative comment around it. And so there was no celebration of being Indian. There was no celebration of being adopted. There was no celebration about um, being South Asian. I I grew up in a home where um, there was just some really like heartbreaking words that were thrown out at me of, you know, like you're here and you should be lucky and glad that you're here. Um, Or even sometimes I've heard, like, if we could send you back, we would, if we could send you back to India, we would. It was with regret and um, a lot of shame. And so very much there, it wasn't just that nothing was said to celebrate, but there was a lot of tone of, of unwantedness and, um, of hurt toward me. Mm.
1: Mm. Wow. So that carried, how did that manifest itself as you continue to grow up? Yeah. So the older I got, the more, uh,
0: I guess you could say like the worse it got in my home. I just continued Mm. to, um, there was like, the thing about it is that there was there was something in me, this hope that I believe that maybe tomorrow would be better. Maybe the next mm. day would be better and maybe, maybe things would change. And so I would call it a defiant hope that's in me mm. and a resilience that kept me moving forward as things got worse and worse at home. And the relationships were more and more strained. There was more tension in my home and it, I don't have an answer of why so many people ask me like, well, why did this happen? And how could such a thing happen? And it's not really helpful to ask the why as much as this has happened. Will you grieve with me and will you hope with me for something mm. better? And so grieve and honor that this is not what was meant to be in my story of adoption, mm. but also hope with me that this isn't, um, this isn't who I am. This isn't, this not label me. This doesn't dictate how I can um, see relationships restored or redeemed in my future. And so um, that, that defiant hope is what kept me alive.
1: Wow, that's beautiful. And that those, those two words combined to me is one of strength, and still tenderness and i see that in you and as i've known you i just i see strength in and still a tender heart and i would love to hear how this whole part of you and your identity was redeemed and and now so celebrated um yes please tell us more of the story
0: yeah absolutely so um i ended up I'll give you a little bit more of like my upbringing here so when I turned 18 I was disowned by my parents by my family completely the day I turned 18 and I knew that was coming and so I did the best to prepare myself and I had a few people in the community who looked out for me and kind of scooped me up when I turned 18. I went into college and it was in college that um yeah, I had some pretty big life transformation, um, as far as my faith journey. And it's just started growing in that area of my life. Um, it wasn't until post college that I discovered and went through an awakening of my own ethnic journey. And mm. prior to that awakening, I actually had been looking through some old photos, a couple of old baby photos I had, And this one day I was looking through these photos came across a Polaroid photo and it said, they call her, uh, sorry, on the front, it had my American name uh, on it. And then it had a date from when I was in the orphanage. And I was so curious about it of how I could have a photo from that young, from that age when I was still in the orphanage that I took it out of the plastic out of the book. And I happened to flip it over. And on the back, it said they call her Sundia in the nursing home hospital. And so wow. I found my name and of first, like, I didn't know how to say it or how to, I was like, I need Google's help. So I Googled it and I kept pushing the button over and over and over to hear how to say my own name. And it mm. was really just beautiful and uh, like uh, awesome moment. Um, mm. And, Sandia actually means to connect darkness to light. And
1: um <laughs> Oh, I just got goosebumps. I know. I got goosebumps I know. from the head of top of my head to my toes. Yes. To connect darkness, darkness to, to light. light.
0: Yeah.
1: Yeah. Sandia, yeah, that is so prophetic and beautiful. Prophetic and beautiful. I mean, okay, keep going. This is okay.
0: wow. <laughs> So from there, I mean, a name is so significant, a name, mm. holds so much meaning. Um, and I went through this awkward, like trying to figure out who I really am. If I change my name at this point, like what happens to my old name, my old identity. And so it took a handful of years to really solidify Like, I feel like I'm in a good spot to change my name, that it's not going to throw me into a whirlwind. And I had Mm. invited my friends to join me on this journey, um, but I didn't tell my friends that I was considering changing my last name someday when I changed my first name. And Mm. um, a handful of years ago, I was in Colorado and I was going there for one of our conferences and I had intentionally... um, ask God, would you give me a new last name? Would you reveal a new last name here for me? And mm-hmm. I didn't tell anybody that I was thinking about changing my last name. And I was walking down Oak street, uh, Collins <gasps> and I happened to mm-hmm. look up and I saw Oak right there, like Oak street. And I was like, Whoa, like that feels like, um, I was, that would feels intentional. That feels like I was meant to look at that sign and, um, I'm a lover of nature and I love trees deeply. And so I thought, you know, there's something different about this. I'm going to hold on to that moment. The next day, this, um, colleague of mine who did not know that I was thinking about changing my name said, um, actually Candace, our friend Candace Seward, she was hiking mm-hmm. the mountains the next day. And she had a moment where God had spoke to her saying, if uh, I ever change my name, she's supposed to help pay for it, help be a part of it. And so she literally came up to me at the conference and said, are you thinking about changing your name? And I'm like, what? And she's like, I was hiking and I, I got a word from the Lord. And, it, and he said, if you ever change your name, I'm supposed to help you pay for it. And I said, Candace. Wow. What? I said, yeah, I am, but I haven't told people this. And I knew from that moment that I was on the right path. Well, the next mm. two to three weeks um, came by and oaks would come up over and over and over. And finally, I looked it up in the Bible and I had, someone had said it's in the Bible. And I looked it up and it talks about being an oak of righteousness, a display of God. Yes. And it just felt like appropriate, very appropriate. So mm. I put all the paperwork and I went to court on October 1st, almost five years ago. And, um, and, uh, I legally changed my name to Sandia Oaks.
1: Beautiful. Oh my goodness. That's so beautiful. Oh, I will just look at your name all the time with the hugest grin now. That's really, really amazing. Really amazing. So from this point with, you know, this new chapter, you know, really, and walking in freedom and really kind of the embracing and the celebrating, what have you learned about being South Asian? What are the things that helped you to kind of reclaim your um, beautiful and rich ethnic heritage? What are some of the things that have happened, things that you've been intentional about? Um, what, what has that been like for you?
0: Yeah, well, it's been, it's an ongoing journey and it's been quite a journey. I, I feel like I've been given lots of gifts to reclaim pieces of my birth culture and mm-hmm. uh, in that same place, Fort Collins, a few um, actually, that same year in Fort Collins, uh, I had this awakening moment to being South Asian. And I had this moment of owning and wanting to steward what it means to be a South Asian woman. And it came through hearing a speaker share about not erasing my own ethnicity and mm-hmm. um, really honoring that. And so, from that point, uh, I think getting to go back to India, getting to talk and meet mm. to who care of me as a little girl, as a baby, that has been super healing. And that reclamation journey of getting to go back and see the ground, like the moment my airplane hit the ground, I looked over at my friend Heather in the airplane in India and said, this is where I'm from. And getting to mm. use those words has been so rich for me. Also, uh, I have taken a love for uh, cooking Indian food. I've learned how Mm. to cook it. And I didn't even have Indian food my first taste until I was 23 years old. And so so it's been a new journey for me. And I celebrate getting to try different dishes, getting to understand uh, why we use different spices, getting to try different tastes. And then also, it is so fun for me to share my love of cooking Indian food with people and getting to invite them into my, my culture, my, my birth culture, my, my love for how God's made me. Like, I just love doing that. And one of the holidays uh, that I've learned to learn about and learn to celebrate is Diwali. And um, mm-hmm. I have uh, a different twist on it than what it is in a traditional Indian um Indian culture, I celebrate, and it's a lot about light. So Diwali celebrates light over darkness. And so I just kind of twisted toward more of a Christian perspective that light wins in the end. And so for me, I like candles. I make an Indian feast and I celebrate the last handful of years with a handful of friends. And it's been so sweet. And I look forward to celebrating that coming up in November as well. And so, mm. yeah. And <laughs> I think one of the things I do around my birthday is I find a henna artist and I get henna done. Um, Mm. I like the beauty of it. I I think it's beautiful and it's a good way to celebrate another year, a turning of a page um, as I celebrate my birthday.
1: Oh, that is so beautiful. That is so beautiful. Can you remember the first time you saw representation? of yourself in media or, um, and what was that like for you? Do you remember? Yeah, I was actually in Iowa city of all places.
0: And I saw, um, this Indian family walk outside of this cafe. And, um, I remember staring, like gazing at them and taking it in. And I thought the woman was beautiful. And I even like had this curiosity and this wondering of like, like, what if, like, could that be my dad? Like, what if they were mm-hmm. an older couple? And I was like, well, could they? And so that's part of being adopted of not knowing my birth parents, um, or mm-hmm. having connection and not knowing and still hoping, you know, um, of connection. Mm-hmm. <laughs> also feeling like wow she's beautiful he like this family is awesome and I just wanted to know them I wanted to ask them questions I wanted to be near them and um yeah that was I think that like that I recall is one of the first times that I saw it and they were in traditional Indian garb and I I thought all of it was just beautiful
1: Mm. wow wow This week's Did You Know is Context is Everything. Did you know the beginnings of transracial and transnational adoption in the United States are relatively recent? According to ethnic studies professor Catherine Zenzia Choi, transracial adoption began in the 1950s and has intimate connections with World War II and the Cold War. Mixed-race children produced by Japanese or Korean women and U.S. servicemen were often looked down upon in Japanese and Korean societies for several reasons. One, many were conceived out of wedlock. Two, they had apparent phenotypic differences. And three, because they manifested the unequal power dynamics between the occupied and occupying countries. Choi argues that, quote, although an American military presence in Japan and Korea was responsible for these children's births, the US government bore no official responsibility for the children's or their mothers' welfare," end quote. The mothers, often in impoverished situations with no aid and doing the best they could for their babies, believed that the best option would be adoption. Thus, the beginning of transracial and transnational adoptions by white Americans through non-governmental organizations (NGOs) began. Another aspect that made these adoptions complicated was the negative and backward portrayal of Asian countries in the media, especially during times of war. Because of these portrayals, adoptions by 1950s U.S. NGOs were masked with humanitarianism and a savior complex, when more often than not, there were multiple parties to blame for the large influx of adoptable children. Many of these NGOs also did not screen their white parental applicants, thus often putting these children in traumatic and dangerous situations. While transracial and transnational adoptions have made improvements since its start, and more resources have been made available, it is important to understand how the complicated history of these adoptions continue to affect adoptees to this day. And that is this week's did you know? So have you since like kind of like found community amongst South Asians and what has that been like and how did you discover and tell me the things.
0: <laughs> yes. And I smile. I'm smiling so big because that has been such a gift to me in the last year and a half. Um, I have, oh, I'm just so thankful. I have so um, developed this community of other South Asian women from across the United States, actually. And um, one of uh, my mentors, her name is Shanthini. She is in Wisconsin. Um, you got to meet her, Viv. Like you would love yeah. this woman. She is okay. brilliant I- and um, has multiple psychology degrees. She's just she's just a beautiful woman. And she, the first time I sat down with her, I got connected to her via another friend. The first time I sat down with her in her backyard over coffee, she said, okay, you need to know the history of the country you're from. And so she started sharing like where Christianity came from in this country and how Mm -hmm. um, we're there and all of that. And I just, for an hour, just listened to her and she just thought it was so important that I knew more about where I come from. Mm -hmm. And so that's Mm -hmm. been, Shantani has been such a gift to me. And then also there's a group of women, we call ourselves the chai ladies, and (laughs) we are a group of women who are all in somewhat, um, places of teaching at universities or missionaries all across the United States. And, uh, I don't really know. I think we each kind of knew A couple of us each knew each other through individual connections, but one by one, we started forming this group and I'd say maybe once a month or every other month we get connected on zoom and we continue to anticipate the day when we can actually be in the same space. But those mm-hmm. women have been women who have encouraged me in my journey, who I've gotten to learn alongside who have held pieces of um, my story. And I've gotten a whole piece of their story, of mm-hmm. be South Asian, especially what it means currently in this day and age. Um, and then recently I've been connected to a handful of women um, actually in, uh, the ministry that we work for, uh, actually all of the women who are South Asian and we had a zoom wow. call a couple weeks ago. And a lot of these girls are interns or uh, newer staff. And so there's, uh, eight of us, I think. And so, wow, that's it. Yeah. Eight of us, um, that we know of. And so, mm-hmm. um, and so that was a really, a really sweet, Treat to be able to share, like, well, how did you find this and how did you get involved and um, Mm -hmm. what is your family like and what part of the traditional Indian culture do you still hold or what part of parts did your family hold? And so it's just this ongoing, like, how can we bond and connect because we have so much we can connect from?
1: Mm. Oh, that is so beautiful. So, most of my, as I've traveled and especially when I've gone to uh, places that are more predominantly white. You know, if i have in a speaking event, you know, typically um, if I am with college students or even women, the women of color or those college students of color that would come up to me, um, they're drawn to seeing someone with a face that looks either like them or close to them, you know, um, but more often than not, I find that they are transracial adoptees and they're, they're kind of all on a journey what could you if you could share any maybe advice two things one for um the, those that people group the transracial adoptee you know trying to navigate being different in a white space any kind of advice for them that's the first part and then the second part is for those of us who have friends and who are you know um Either with or connected to like what are what are some maybe pro tips for us, like even language or things that we may say that are hurtful that we didn't realize, you know um, just helping us to be better equipped and better friends to our transracial adoptees. so if you could address both of those questions, that would be great.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So here's the thing I want to say, first of all, like I am one transracial adoptee out of many, This we know. And so I can't speak for all, and I can't speak for all South Asian um, women either. But I will say this, if I could encourage a transracial adoptee, I would say keep moving forward in discovering your story. Keep moving forward in discovering where you're from, Uh, who are the influential and safe uh, people that you want to invite in. Don't do this journey alone. Mm -hmm. Find at least one or two people, preferably two people, who you can engage in the grief, in the joy, in the discovery of who you are and where you're from. Um, That Mm -hmm. has been helpful. I think if it wasn't for a few safe people, to ask questions, be curious with me, hold the loss of my story and can encourage me to continue to dive in, continue to look, continue to discover, um, knowing that there might not be answers and that's okay. Mm -hmm. There's a grief that comes with not knowing answers, but, um, but yeah, do not give up searching for a, for where you're from. And, um, Mm -hmm because I think it's important. It's really important to know. And I think identity formation is complex as a, a transracial adoptee. Um, regardless of what type of adoption journey you've had, if it's been amazing or if it's been hard, even if it's been amazing, there's been hard. I'm going to say you can't mm-hmm. say adoption is amazing without saying that it's also hard. I think that's a, a false thing that we hear about adoption. It's beautiful. It's great, but it all in all, it can be, but there's hard parts and there's loss, and we need mm-hmm. to acknowledge that to honor
1: um, adoptees and the triad of adoption.
0: And so, um, oh yeah,
1: yes, okay. We'll get to that in a second about the the triad of adoption. So keep going, and then I'll come. I'll circle back with the triad.
0: Great, great. Um, so the other part that I would say for those who are either um, caregivers of adoptees or people who are connected to adoptees, I would say a couple things. One, there are things to say and not to say, for sure. Um, Some of the things uh, is like, do you ever, (laughs) the question, do you ever wish you could find your parents? Well, I'm gonna say for me, of course I do. Like, of course, why mm. wouldn't I? But that question's not helpful and it can bring up, um, it can trigger pain in people. It can bring up um, unhelpful um, thoughts to um, harmful thoughts to people as they they don't have answers. Um, we don't get the gift of knowing all the pieces of our story. And mm. so I think that question comes up so often. Um, mm. Another one that I would say is, Don't assume that an adoptee uh, is connected to their culture. I actually Mm. connected to my culture, my birth culture until uh, five, six years ago. And so don't assume that they uh, practice or um, engage with their birth culture. Um, Mm. Also, don't don't assume that um, they're this... I think sometimes it can be really hard, like ask questions. If you're going to, if you're going to ask questions, ask questions that help engage them. Don't just ask questions that you're looking for answers to know about them. And so Hmm. you could ask me about um, my family, or you could ask me about a little bit of my name, but you're not just asking for the point of knowing you're asking because you want to develop a deeper relationship. So just, I'd say, check your heart in what you're asking, um, adoptees, and also come with the knowledge that they have the right to not share with you and expose themselves. Mm-hmm. And I think sometimes that's a struggle with adoptees is that so much of our stories have already been exposed by people. Um, out of not out of in uh, misintent, um, ill intent, but out of just people want their kids and their families to be known, but it also comes at such a cost that their story has been shared countless times, um, and they haven't had a choice. So just know that some of the questions mm-hmm. you ask might not you might not get answers, and to respect the privacy um, and where that person's at in their story.
1: Oh, that is so good. And what it's causing me to think about is so often the story of adoption that I've found has been told through the parents who are adopting, like that's the story. And there hasn't been a place for the voice of the adoptee to, to necessarily speak into it or have any say as to whether or not their picture would be plastered or their story would be told. And that really, I mean, I think that's a, a a blind spot that I don't think until having this conversation with you, realizing, wow, I think the majority of the material, the majority of the storyline has been that of the parents being these heroes for going and, you know, sacrificing to, you know, rescue this poor child out of poverty kind of thing. So can you speak to that a little bit?
0: Yeah, definitely. And you use one of the words that I would say is a triggering word. I the word rescue. Oh man, mm-hmm. I that is a a, a word I, I don't like, and it's not appropriate for adoptees. No one rescues a child. Like I, yes, there's like there's rescuing in some aspects of. Uh, When it comes to trafficking and so on. But, like, when it comes to adoption, you're not rescuing because otherwise, that's putting so much glory and weight on you as the adoptee, uh, as the parent of the adoptee. And that's making this like um, savior uh, Mm. relationship of I and power and savior. And I just, um, it takes, it makes it very,
1: it's an imbalance of, yes, an imbalance of value
0: even. Yeah. Yes. And it puts the vulnerability on the child and Mm. it's just, it's hard to come back from. And so even a handful of years ago, I was sitting at a table with, um, some people and this one mom said to me, now we rescued our, our child and, um, through adoption. And I just said, um, oh, you know, I am, glad that you adopted your kiddo, but I would really hesitate and strongly advise not using the word, um, rescue and here's why. And I explained to her and she Mm. very, she received it really well, but that's something that is so, that's some of the language of our culture that we want to rescue. We want to feel good about ourselves that we did something Mm -hmm. really when you adopt, you're saying, I am going to join you in the pain. I'm going to join you in the trauma. I'm going to join you in the loss and the, in the grief of your story. And I'm going to walk with you rather than above you or in front of you. And so, yes, that is a different narrative that we need. And we, we need adoptive parents to know and hear and, um, yeah,
1: to, to use that language. Sandy, I think you really nailed it there because it's it, because we don't hear from, we don't, I don't, I don't feel like there are a lot of resources out there spoken from the adoptee's point of view, which is sorely missing. Um, so I would love for you to kind of um, unpack for us this beautiful um, adoption triad that you refer to and what this whole group is about and, and, um, We'll definitely link up all of these places in the show notes and everything. We'll probably have some more little shout outs at the end. But talk about this triad and what are the components of the triad? How do they all work together? And, you know, tell me about what, what you're involved with.
0: Yeah, so my friend Courtney and I are both adoptees, and we uh created this platform on Facebook to be able to give voice to all voices of the triad. And so often we hear from adoptive parents um, in this conversation, but we rarely hear from what we call birth mothers or um, first mothers, and mm-hmm. we really hear from the adoptees. And so we want to give, and all three of those um, points of the triad matter in this conversation. They all influence um, each other. And so we thought, why not come up with a place where all voices could be and come together? And so it's a Facebook group uh, for uh, prospective parents, current parents, current adoptees, current birth moms, and it's a place to find community, connection, connection, Resources. Um, Once in a while, Courtney and I will share little pieces of our story. We um, filmed uh, our thoughts, our honest thoughts about Mother's Day and how that affects each of us in our own stories. Wow! Yes. um, We it came out like we started this in November last year, and it has grown um, by the hundreds already. And so, it is an honor to be a part of it. And it's been really interesting to hear from different families, and different families will share. Um, like questions about how do we handle this, or what about this for school, or uh, how mm. do we find deeper connection? And so it's actually been a really sweet on ramp for helping people get connected to other voices. And there are many, uh, there are many ways to look at a situation. And I think when you can weigh in and hear from a bunch of different people, you can get a lot of perspective. I don't think there's mm. really one voice that's the right voice on on all things. And so I think that's been sweet to see everyone weigh in when someone says, Hey, this is really hard, especially maybe around the holidays last year. I remember some people posting, like it's hard in my area of the triad, as I think about the holidays, or it's been hard in the midst of where our world is at right now. Are there any resources? Mm. And then all of a sudden you'll see a plethora of people writing back and encouraging um, the person mm. posted. And so it is it's an honor to be able to to be a part of.
1: Wow. That is such a needed resource. And I'm so glad that you are doing that and leading out in that way, really to provide very tangible ways to connect, to learn, to ask questions in a safe environment and to be validated through the various experiences. And even I'm picturing for a first mother to be able to read stories from adoptees and to feel comforted in some way um, in the same way to be an, a mother who's adopting or in the process of adopting and to be, to to be wanting to get the resources to help set up this child to really grow and celebrate their story. But also what you pointed out, I think is so beautiful that when a family moves in a, in, in the adoption story, it's really an agreement to walk alongside, to um, to grieve the loss, to be able to um, hold that story in a really beautiful, honoring way and Uh, be committed for life to, you know, ideally committed for life to walk through the ups and the downs and the joys and the sorrows and doing all those parts. So I love that. Um, I admire you as a leader, and I would love to hear any leadership lessons that you kind of direct your life by or that you admire yourself. Um, That whole area, I just would, we could probably do a whole nother podcast just on leadership, but for our listeners, what are some of your leadership lessons? Yeah, I would say a big lesson uh,
0: or uh, something that really has helped develop me in the last year. I went through the Seattle School of Psychology and Theology, and I did a program called the Certificate in Resilient Service. And I learned a lot about what it means to be resilient as a leader and how we mm. need rest, We need nourishment. We need care in the context of relationship in order to increase our resilience. And resilience is something that I learned. Like usually you think about resilience after there's been like a huge ministry explosion or you hear about um, you've gone through a trauma and then you need to like lean in or grow that resilience but what I've learned from that program is that you can actually increase and build your resilience even before something hard happens. Mm. Like practicing the disciplines of rest, Sabbath, and um, nourishment in the context of relationship. So that's been huge for me. And it is, it's definitely what my life, I would say, I'm not perfect at this whole rest thing, but I would definitely say it's transformed the way. I schedule my time and when I'm tired or when I'm weary, I can honestly look at, hmm, have I allowed myself to be cared by other people? Have I given myself um, the opportunities to be nourished through my senses? Have I mm. leaned into places of, of uh, relationship and just inviting people to walk with me? If not, that might might be an indication that I'm tired, that why I'm tired, why I'm weary. So that's been really helpful. Another thing that I, I, again, from the Allender Center, um, I learned is a lot about curiosity in leadership Hmm. and the power of curiosity. Um, uh, I did not know that curiosity can dismantle stress. And so usually when, so I'm an Enneagram seven and mm-hmm. um, when I get, uh, like nervous about something really hard or like, I just don't like pain. I'm just going to say it. I don't okay. like pain. Yeah. Yeah. Don't like pain. We'll avoid um. it at all costs and numb out. Yes, exactly. Yes. So, but I have learned that if you can entertain and engage the pain with curiosity, uh, it can actually uh, dismantle some of that stress that comes with it. And so, for example, something really like I'm, I'm experiencing, um <laughs> Even now, I'm talking about I'm getting anxious. Um, I <laughs> my own breath, but I in real time, real time. So something hard happens. I'm facing. It's painful. If I can lean in and ask questions such as, "Where is this coming from? Where have I felt this before?" Why is this my reaction? What might my pain be trying to tell me or inform me? Where, have, um, where has this pattern come up before? If I can mm. in it rather than run from it, it can actually dismantle it and um, uh, allow some release to happen by my mm-hmm, curiosity. Mm-hmm. And so I can start to form uh, thoughts or I can start to understand more rather than just let it be this big bad guy. I can enter it, it, and um,
1: in, and see the invitation in it. Oh, that is fantastic! I I admired leaders who have that kind of awareness to because we take us wherever we go, and I think sometimes in leadership we just think, "Oh, just fire the whole staff; they're the ones that are messed up." When it's actually us that we are the ones, and as we're able to recognize these things and and really learn. How to manage our own uh, well-being, our just our whole, uh, our whole uh, person, you know, so that we are physical. We need rest and food, and good food and nourishment, and um, connection and being known. All of those things that you're talking about that those really are such key principles of leadership because we lead out of who we are. And so, I love that. That's excellent. So good. Okay fun topic. Here we go. Favorite comfort foods. And I know that, I mean, we, I, I have loved whenever I try something Indian, you are so quick to chime in like, this is great. Have you tried this? So it's just been so fun. So I would love to hear maybe your one or two of your favorite comfort foods at this point, or favorite things that you love to, to make or eat. Um, just go for it. I've just, mm, yes. I'm like, who, which one should I say? I well, actually
0: tonight <laughs> for dinner, I'm making tandoori chicken and mm. turmeric rice. And so I am excited for some really good, uh, it's marinating right now, like right in my Can fridge. You and smell I'm, like, it? I'm like, well, for my, when I put all the spices in the marinade, I let, I use my fingers for some of it. And I was like, oh my gosh, I love the smell of ground masala. And mm. uh, so good. So that's one of my faves right now. And then mm-hmm. also a more I would say French style would be um I love charcuterie. I love making charcuterie yes. boards. It's been a fave of mine. <laughs> a little bit of cheese, a little bit of
1: grapes, and some other stuff in between. And I love nibbled so, so Yes. Okay, so I, okay, that has been one of our little COVID things that me and my daughter have doing, but I could not say charcuterie for charcuterie. a million <laughs> yes. years. See, so it's like the charcuterie, <laughs> and I could kind of picture it in my mind, but I could not say charcuterie. So I had to say it over and over, charcuterie board, charcuterie board. And so the next thing that I need to learn to say is, um, well, there's two of them. One is kombucha, kombu, kombucha, kombucha, kombucha. Kombucha. All right. See, kombucha. I, yeah, see, I'm still trying to like that. And, you know, those kinds. And then there's like a, a a drink called Tapa Chico or Tapa. I think that's how you say it. It's kind of like a LaCroix, but I always say it wrong. So charcuterie, uh, these are all these words that I need to learn. So, yes, I've learned now charcuterie board. So
0: charcuterie board. Yeah. And I'm going to throw one more
1: in. Okay.
0: And this is like, oh, this is always a classic fave of mine. It's a big bowl of popcorn made with avocado oil on the stove. And Himalayan sea salt on top.
1: You <gasps> won't go wrong by
0: having a big bowl of that.
1: Literally. Ooh, okay. I So we have the whirly pop, which is kind of like one of my yes. favorite gifts to give. So true story. When my son, Michael, was born, he got this really nice blanket at a shower for a Disneyland character blanket thing that was like worth a lot of money. And I went and I returned it for the cash. And I bought a whirly pop thinking, you know, our family, family movie nights, you know, Michael will love this one day. So, anyway, we love the Whirly Pop because it has these vents and the steam scape. So, like almost all the popcorn kernels pop in this Whirly Pop. And it, you can do like kettle corn in there when you add some sugar and then you sprinkle the salt afterwards and you can use whatever kernels you have, but the whirly pop. but I'm going to try that. Pop, okay. Check yeah, out the whirly pop. Okay. Yeah. This is going to be, yes. Yes. It's a, it's a very fun thing. So yes, I'm a popcorn lover. So awesome. very, very fun. Well, how can people connect with you and how can they find you? Yeah.
0: So I'm on Instagram, Facebook, um, under Sundia Oaks and, um, a sweet opportunity at oh I also have a website that's coming out. Um, it will be mm-hmm. launched in just a couple of weeks. And so um, again, my website, I don't know what it's called. I think it's just Sundia Oaks. <laughs> I'm, I have a friend <laughs> who is helping me create it, but I'm pretty sure I own the name
1: Sundia Oaks for the website. So um, I also will just say, to say take- it confidently and then we'll change it if we need to. <laughs> yes, sure great.
0: I have a website coming out that's Sundia Oaks. And so come check it out. And then lastly, I am doing um, a support group through uh Restoration Counseling in Fort Collins, Colorado. And it's a support group for transracial adoptee parents and so parents of transracial adoptees. And I will be leading a couple of these groups uh, throughout this next year here, starting in October. And I will also be leading in the future uh, group support groups for transracial adoptees. So you can head over to the restoration counseling website and you can look up my information and I would love to invite you to be a part of one of my support groups.
1: Oh, that is such so great to know that there are resources like that. So Thank you. Are there any other books you would recommend that just come off the top of your head that you just would recommend for anyone in the triad that you personally would recommend?
0: So here are two books that I would recommend. First, Mm -hmm. All I Can Ever Know by Nicole Chung. And then secondly, Attachments, Why You Love, Feel, and Act the Way You Do. This book Mm. has been gold for me. I have read it one and a half times we'll say, cause I don't know that I read it twice. So I'll say one and a half times. And it is awesome to understand more of your style of relating your attachment and whether you're an adoptee or an parent of an adoptee, I think we need to understand more of how we relate to one another and understand more mm-hmm. of how we even relate to ourselves. And so I would definitely um, recommend these two books. Um, we need more books by adoptees. And so, Yes, we do. We need more
1: of those. Well, I'm going to be cheering you on way ahead of time with hopefully your book one day. So we'll just, everyone just needs to follow, send you to know what the latest is on all the things and we, we will just be cheering you on wildly. So thank you so much for being on our podcast and for sharing your story. It has been so rich. I feel like you have helped fill in a lot of the blanks and helped give a more 3d picture of not only just your own story, because like you shared, you, you shared that's not, your story doesn't represent all adoptees, but these themes are so key. And I just, I have just appreciated your willingness to be able to share and help us to learn. And we celebrate with you in the, the choices that you're making and the leader that you are and who you're continuing to become and on this journey. So thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you for having me. It's been so fun to hang out with you. Defiant hope kept me alive. What an amazing conversation. Ah, I just loved spending time with Sanja, and every time I get the chance to to meet with her, she's full of so much joy and hope, and she lives out of an abundance. And I hope that you were taking notes. We have connected on uh, the show notes all of the different resources that she mentioned. Uh, for those of you that are seeking a support group, I really want to encourage you to look up her restorative counseling support group for transracial adoptees um, If you would like more information on her Facebook group, I would encourage you to go and find the Adoption Triad on Facebook. Uh, I thought that was so powerful. I hadn't thought about what Mother's Day would be like um, for each of the people on on the Adoption Triad. And to be able to have a place to process and hear from one another, I just think what a beautiful place of redemption and encouragement and help. So, I would say our call to action this week is to be mindful of the stories of adoptees, and to seek to really come alongside. I loved that her um, her what Sanjay was mentioning about asking questions to really develop relationships, really to know about people rather than just about them, but to understand that adoptees. They, don't, um, they have the right to not share, but when they do uh, open up their lives to us, it's truly a gift. And really, this idea of really helping to develop relationships is what life is really all about. So have a wonderful week. I can't wait for you to hear our next episode from another phenomenal up-and-coming Asian American woman leader. So we'll see you next week. Thank you for joining us this week. As always, we appreciate your feedback and invite you to subscribe, share, rate and review this podcast to help others find this show. The outstanding team that makes Sundays Here possible is composed of an incredible group of men and women. The Sundays Here logo and graphics are designed by Jocelyn Chung. The original music is by Joseph Patrick with PassionNet Production. The show notes and quotes are compiled by Vicky Fan. The sound engineer is Aaron Kretzman. The Did You Know section is researched and written by Elise Izumi. The creative design and website designer is Kenny Wong. And the executive producer is Chantel Reynolds. Have a great week, and we look forward to bringing you another episode of Sunday is Here next week.